Faith Matters Podcast. I'm your host, John Morgan. Well, thank you for listening to and uh, watching the video version of the podcast for Multi-Faith Matters. If you find this podcast helpful, uh, please consider helping us out. You can click on the Patreon page. You'll find the link uh, in the program comments on YouTube and also uh, in our program description on uh, our audio version. You can also click like, and uh, whether it's on YouTube or your favorite uh, podcast platform, such as Apple Podcasts, help us get the word out and support it. Thank you so much. Well, this is the uh, podcast for Multi-Faith Matters. I'm the host, John Moorhead, and I'm privileged today to have as a returning guest, Randall Rouser. And uh, I will read a, a little bit of his uh, bio. Uh, Randall is professor of historical theology at Taylor Seminary in Edmonton, Alberta, where he tells me he is now undergoing the first snowstorm of the year. He's the author of many books, including Conversations with My Inner Atheist, An Atheist and a Christian Walk into a Bar, Is the Atheist My Neighbor?, you're not as crazy as I think, and his most recent volume that we're going to be talking about today, Jesus Loves Canaanites, Biblical Genocide in Light of Moral Intuition. Randall, welcome to the program again. Well, thanks for having me back, John. It's good to be here. This is a, a great subject. Let me share a little background before you and I start having the conversation. Um, I, I've been looking uh, more intently recently at the Bible and, viol- uh, Bible and violence, and of course, uh, the, the notion of the, the Canaanite genocide and destruction of a whole population in the Old Testament is probably the primary example and the most concerning. But the way I kind of stumbled into this is I work in multi-faith engagement, and folks may be thinking, what in the world does multi-faith matters have to do with the discussion of the Canaanite uh, genocide? Well, I've, I've noticed over the years Uh, particularly post 9-11, that evangelicals and other Christians are very quick to point the finger at Muslims and the Quran over violent passages that they see as justifying or or used as justification for acts of terrorist violence. And yet it seems like we're living in a glass house. We don't recognize and acknowledge the very troubling passages in the Bible that can and have in certain instances historically been used by Christians to justify various acts of violence against others. So I think this is a relevant topic that we need to unpack for a variety of reasons. And I'm pleased to see your book uh, entered into the growing, but small, but growing body of literature by Christians tackling this topic. So with that as the background, what is it that led you to write the volume? One of the reasons that I write books is to get my own thinking on a particular issue sorted. And, uh, as with many people, this was an issue that for a long time, I think I lived with cognitive dissonance on it. So in other words, I didn't know how to reconcile it. So I would sort of adopt some half-hearted apologetic explanation of it and then move on. Um, But there was always something nagging about it. So for example, I opened the book with an experience, I think it was back in 1995, where I read a story about a man who had, I should say maybe trigger warning for this whole conversation. I know we do trigger warnings today, which I think is a good thing. 
Um, and there's gonna be probably some trigger warnings for violence and so on. So this is an example. Uh, so I read this story about a father who beheaded his own son because he believed God was, was telling him to do that. And I just responded so viscerally to that. Um, it was sort of, of course, this Abrahamic kind of living out the Abraham narrative, but God doesn't intervene in that case. Well, you could say, okay, but God did intervene in Abraham. So uh, God didn't command this, except that you have that same degree of violence God commanding throughout the Bible, such as in passages uh, like 1 Samuel 15.3, where God commands the killing of all the Amalekites, including infants. Or you have um, the passages I look at, in particular, in Deuteronomy 7 and 20, and then Joshua uh, and the destruction of the Canaanites. And so at that point, even there's already a seed growing that I really need to think about this more deeply because my visceral response, God would not command that. It doesn't just apply to a father killing his own son. Wouldn't it also apply to a soldier killing an infant in the battlefield? Um, well, the new atheism then arose in the early 2000s as partially or largely, I would say, a reaction to 9-11 and the linking between 9-11 and religious ideology. So this idea that, as you mentioned Muslims earlier, the Muslims were driven to geopolitical violence because of their religious beliefs. And so religion is linked to violence. But when the new atheists like Richard Dawkins or Christopher Hitchens talked about it, they also said, look at all the violence in the Bible. And that really helped precipitate this conversation within Christianity and in evangelicalism about how to think about this more intently. So I entered the conversation in an article in 2009 in Philosophia Christian Academic Journal where I responded to Paul Copan. And I've been on the fringes of this conversation for the last 12 years or so. I decided to kind of, uh, I did a debate last year with a well-known atheist named Dan Barker. And after that debate on biblical violence, I said, I got to lay out my thoughts on this. And so I wrote the book. And so that's where we are now. Now, there's been, a, for what it's worth, in years past, I had, I think it was three debates with Dan Barker. He's an interesting mm. character, for sure. Uh, former Pentecostal minister, uh, become atheist. And he, I think he even says he's uh, still an evangelist, but now he's an evangelist for atheism, which is kind of interesting in its own way. Yeah. Um, there's There's been a growing <clears throat> number of, of Christian contributions to this subject. I'm thinking of Philip Jenkins at Baylor uh, with his book, Laying Down the Sword, uh, I think Eric Siebert, if I'm pronouncing his last name yeah. correctly, disturbing divine behavior. Uh, what what is it that you wanted to do to make a unique contribution to your book? Uh, I, probably the the most significant, distinctive of my book is in the subtitle, "Rethinking Biblical Violence in Light of of uh, Moral Intuition," because I think one of the huge, the, in fact, I think the underlying catalyst for this whole conversation. Is, is an intuitive sense about right and wrong, good and evil. And so when we respond viscerally to the idea of a father killing his child or a soldier killing an infant on the battlefield, we're tapping into these deep moral intuitions about the nature of the universe in terms of morality. And I want it to be very intentional about thinking through the nature of morality with respect to biblical violence and what we can discern about how we interpret scripture by careful reflection on moral knowledge. So that's really the heart of the book. Um, a couple other pieces, like there's a chapter in there where I talk about a, the question, well, why don't Christians deal with this more readily? And I think it's because we have particular reading strategies that keep biblical violence at bay for us. And I think we need to unmask those and call them out. And so I have a section on that. And then also just ordering the landscape. So I've offered what is, to my knowledge, a sort of a unique take on it by arguing that there are four main views today 
uh, from the defense of genocide or what I call genocide apologists to what I call just war interpreters, and then what I call providential errantists and spiritualizers. And so that organization of the field of discourse is also, I think, something unique to my book. Well, when I saw the, the subtitle of your book, you mentioned immoral intuitions, it piqued my curiosity because I've done some research in social psychology in connection with a grant to try and understand the psyche of evangelicals in regards to why they have the fears and defensiveness about other religious traditions. So I was pleased to see somebody else picking up on uh, the idea of moral intuitions. Now, you don't go into the social psychology, but could you unpack for listeners and viewers the significance of that component of moral intuitions? And what do you say to push back? I've seen some of the so-called reviews on Facebook, on uh, Amazon to your book, where one uh, person completely dismissed it and said, well, he cares more about our faulty moral intuitions than he does the authority of the word of God. What would a response be to that? Uh, let me start with that and then talk <laughs> sure. about moral intuitions okay. more generally. So I, uh, the issue with a comment like that one is that it fails to recognize that um, it's, it is true, first of all. Yes, our moral intuitions are fallible. They can make errors. But so can our reading of the Bible, our mm -hmm. hermeneutics or interpretation. And what that individual would seem to be doing is uncritically accepting a particular interpretation of the Bible that they've received from a tradition and using that to steamroll their moral intuitions. And what I think that they need is to have a greater sense of their limitations of hermeneutics and be critical and self-aware of that. Uh, now, in terms of, of moral knowledge and moral intuitions, so all reasoning starts with intuitive starting points. That's true of, of logical reasoning generally. So you begin with what we call logical axioms or intuitive starting points. So for example, we had most famously is probably Aristotle's laws of thought, where you have things like the law of non-contradiction, the law of identity, uh, the law of excluded middle. And from those basic starting points intuitively, we can now make reasoned inferences and arguments. And so you can reason out from the starting points. And it's the same when it comes to moral knowledge. The moral knowledge begins with intuitive starting points as to the nature of good and evil, right and wrong, and then you reason out from them. And so what I wanted to do was to be very intentional on what those intuitive starting points are, what basis we have to accept them, and then reason out from them. And so I do so by way of careful conceptual reflection on thick narratival descriptions or thick stories of events. And just ask intuitively, what is your starting point reflection on this? Do you think this is good or evil, right or wrong? And then go from there. So you can make errors with that, of course, as with anything else. But I think that we can have a high degree of confidence in certain moral claims, such as that it is wrong to kill infants on the battlefield, that, that genocide is morally wrong. And if you do come to that conclusion, you now have to think how that's going to affect your Bible reading. It's kind of interesting in that it seems to me that uh, conservative evangelicals lean heavily into their moral intuitions all the time on certain issues like the abortion issue, a pro-life position. And then I think they go back and then find biblical passages that they think support that. So what do you think a similar dynamic might be going on in regards to issues of the Bible and violence and the Canaanite genocide? It's a great example you raised because I actually talk about that in the book. So I give an example that when evangelicals, and I'll say it myself, I'm, I'm pro-life with respect to elective abortion, but I think that this is part of a consistent pro-life ethic that I just wish extended to Canaanite infants mm -hmm. as well. Um, so for um, evangelicals traditionally, when they've approached the abortion issue, that they've recognized if you really want to get people to think clearly about abortion, 
don't allow them to, to simply objectify and depersonalize the human fetus, but allow them to, ex to understand precisely what is at stake in abortion, what happens in something like a saline abortion or a DNC abortion. And so evangelicals have often tried to describe the act of abortion. I give an example in the book where Bernard Nathanson, who himself is a famous abortion doctor, I think one of the founders of NARAL, which is, was a famous, uh, well-known abortion activist group. And he later became a Catholic and became staunchly pro-life. When he became pro-life 35, well, he's 40 years ago now, he produced a film called Silent Scream, which depicts an abortion happening to a fetus um, by way of uh, just, just depicting what happens within the uterus of the woman and how that happens. And so Silent Scream is about a 24 minute movie and it's a very disconcerting film to watch. And the idea was get people to appreciate what's at stake in abortion. And I simply want to do the same thing for the Canaanites, humanize the Canaanites. And it's actually one of the things that is distinctive about the book is that to give a contemporary analog for what would have happened in Canaan, I describe at length um, what happened in Rwanda in 1994, because I think it's actually a very close analog, including the modes of killing, of close contact killing with the use of cutting instruments, whether it be machetes in Rwanda or swords in ancient Israel, and targeting the entire population from infants up to the elderly. Get a sense of what that was like and if, if your moral intuitions are screaming at you that that was wrong, intrinsically wrong in Rwanda, again, you got to apply that to ancient Israel and Canaan. Well, in some of your previous work that I've enjoyed, uh, I can see how it might have been challenging for conservative Christian readers, the idea that we need to humanize and, and befriend and have conversations through deep difference with atheists. But with this recent volume, you, you take it from a discussion of the outsider in a sense, and you bring it inside to a wrestling with the sacred text and certain assumptions about how that's supposed to be read. So how are you framing your main thesis and this, this challenge to our hermeneutical and ethical assumptions for readership that you would like to persuade uh, to think and act differently about this topic? I think reading, the way that we read texts is just foundationally important. You can't overestimate how important that is. And so I have a chapter where I devote to articulating what I think are five basic Christian reading principles for scripture. Uh, now, here maybe this is a good point to address at the outset, that my approach is not to say that I think some parts of scripture are just in error, that we should get rid of them, we should stop reading Joshua, but rather that we have to recognize if all scriptures God breathed, it is all ultimately for the purpose, I believe, as Paul says in his letter to Timothy, it's for the purpose of teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training us to make us more like Jesus. So that if you are reading the text in such a way that it leads you to dehumanize a person, then you're reading it wrong. Uh, you're kind of missing the point of the, of the function of the narrative within the bigger story. We need to read in such a way that we grow in our love of God and neighbor, which is actually an Augustinian principle. It's, I didn't invent it. It's a 1,600-year-old principle, at least. So for Augustine, if you are reading in such a way that it leads you to depersonalize, objectify, dehumanize your neighbor, you're reading it wrong. I think a lot of Christians end up reading the Bible wrong in a way that dehumanizes and objectifies their neighbor. And we really need to rethink that. So that's not, again, it's not a matter of questioning the Bible in terms of its inspiration or its divine authority or source of origin, but rather questioning certain ways of reading it that have been handed down to us. 
I use the, the term and you apply it genocide, and I've been using it as we've been having, having this discussion here, but I've noticed that uh, many folks who support or who, who believe that this destruction was uh, divinely justified and so on, that they sometimes bristle at the use of the term. How are you defining it and how do you handle objections to the use of that term? Let me just give a couple objections that I hear and then I'll kind of define it and go more deeply into it. So one objection is that genocide is a modern term so that it's anachronistic, it's inappropriate to use it for earlier time periods. It is a modern term. Right? It was coined in, uh, well, I guess Raphael Lemkin was a Polish Jewish lawyer who lost several family members in the concentration camps. And when he was looking at the evil of the Nazis, he said, we need to have a special term for this concept. And so he came up with genocide, which combines the Latin word genos for a type or kind of thing. And then the uh, suffix is from Latin for killing. So the idea of an intentional act of trying to destroy an identity, which may or may not include destroying the individuals who have that identity, as in killing them. It could include other things like forced sterilization, for example, or just an attempt to destroy their culture by deporting them and sending them off to another land, things like that. So, so he said, we need to have a term for that. And so he coined genocide. It was recognized uh, in 1948 in the United Nations and in international law. But here's the thing. It was applied retroactively to what the Nazis did in World War II. So the very foundation of the term involves a retroactive application. And it has since been applied multiple times to other past events. Uh, so, for example, Joe Biden courted some controversy by calling the actions of the Turks in 1915 a genocide. So um, we can go back then in principle to ancient Israel and say that the events that happened in ancient Israel meet the legal definition of genocide. Um, so that's, I think, a non-starter. And that's the definition of what we're talking about. I was just checking my one dog uh, is threatening to steal my other dog's cookies. <laughs> and he's, he can't move. And so when she steals his right. cookies, that's just wrong. <laughs> um, so anyway, back to it. So then another objection I often get is that, well, it's not genocide, what, what God has described as commanding in ancient Israel or in ancient Canaan, because the Canaanites were a threat to the Israelites. And so the Israelites had to destroy them. So it was, that's the reason. That also misses the point. The legal definition of the concept of genocide uh, does not determine what the motivation is. It only determines that in, in terms of the ultimate motivation, like to protect the people. What it depends upon is the motivation to destroy the identity. If you meet that, it's genocide. So the, the um, uh, Hitler, he said, we have to destroy the Jews because they are a racial typhoid. They will infect the German population. And so he, in fact, ironically, had a similar logic for the killing the Jews that is invoked in ancient Canaan for destroying the Canaanites. They will infect us. They are unclean. They are sinful and evil. So that is irrelevant to the charge of genocide. So I think it's appropriate to use the term. Um, and then you just have to consider with the precision of the term and with our understanding of what genocide looks like in the 20th century and 21st century, are we comfortable affirming that it is not intrinsically wrong, that in fact, God sometimes has commanded genocide and perhaps could command it again. Uh, this is one of the unsettling issues here that's outstanding which is that, for example, there are particular ways of reading the book of Revelation, that there will be this massive cosmic battle in the future in which God's people, the righteous, will destroy the wicked. And that, in principle, allows for the possibility that if genocide was permissible in the past, in fact, obligatory in the past, perhaps participation in it could be obligatory again. And I think that's a possibility that should concern all of us. 
what one of the other disturbing things is that uh, <clears throat> this position, this viewpoint has been so ingrained within many segments of uh, Christianity that once it was challenged by folks like the New Atheists, uh, apologetic volumes started coming out. Do you think it was the rise of the New Atheists that kind of led to this cottage industry of uh, apologetic attempts? And what kinds, what are what are some of the arguments that somebody like a Paul Copan might use to support a view in this kind of thing? So a couple things there. So first of all, new atheists were definitely a catalyst, but I think also just 9-11 itself was a catalyst. Mm. I think in the fall of 2002, it was, uh, I think I have the year right, that a uh, well-known biblical scholar named John Collins delivered mm -hmm. a paper at Society of Biblical Literature on, quote, the zeal of Phineas, where this ancient Israelite is commended for his violent xenophobic action of killing other people. And that raised a conversation within biblical scholars that we need to deal with this more forthrightly. And so, in fact, Zondervan, not long after that, published a four-point counterpoint book on biblical violence, which I think was catalyzed not because of the new atheists, because they actually weren't really going yet, mm -hmm. but rather was really a response to 9-11 itself. Mm. But the new atheists clearly did uh, spur on the conversation. And within the Christian apologetics industry, I think it is largely the new atheists that were the catalyst. So you had Paul Copan publish in Philosophia Christi an article responding to them in 2008. And then in 2011, he came out with his first book on the topic. Uh, and then he's published another book subsequently in 2014. And there's a lot of other Christian apologists who have taken on the topic as well. Uh, in terms of Copan, he fits under the, the moniker that I call just war interpreters, where he says with adequate nuance and attention to the text, we can argue, we can conclude that in fact, what God was commanding meets the legal definition of just war rather than genocide. Uh, and what I, one of the things I do in the book is critique Paul Copan's views at length and argue, in fact, he, his view collapses back into genocide apologetics. So he is in fact defending what is by legal definition genocide. And I think his attempt to recast it as just war is simply a failed attempt to get the text to align to his moral intuitions more clearly, and, and it just doesn't work in my view. Um, I, would you also include, uh, hasn't William Lane Craig done some defense of this, some apologetic work as well? Yeah, he's done several, I think largely podcasts on it. And um, he's he's largely been impacted by um, the same sources that, including Copan, he's been influenced by Copan, and I think also by a biblical scholar named Richard Hess, among others. So, for example, uh, Hess argues that in 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 uh, ancient Canaan, the the places that we call cities, such as Jericho and Ai, which were targeted for complete eradication, uh, he says, in fact, those really are closer to what we would today call military fortresses or citadels, and the the civilian population lived in the rural areas. And he also argues that we have these. We have some language of totally destroy them, such as in Deuteronomy 20, 10 to, or 16 to 18. But in other places, we have the language of drive them out. In fact, that is the more common language, driving them out of the land. And so people like Hess have argued that the, the command to total, totally eradicate was really limited to the military fortresses. And everybody else was supposed to be driven out of the land. And, and that's not genocide. That's the claim. And so people like Copan and um, Bill Craig have argued along those lines. And I think that, that that fails for for several reasons. 
one reason is because um, if that happened today, uh, that would still qualify. First of all, it would clearly qualify as what we call ethnic cleansing, which is the attempt to forcibly eradicate or remove a population by way of religious, cultural, or ethnic identity from a territory. So it's still ethnic cleansing, which is still very bad. Um, but also, I think it would qualify as genocide. And here's a couple reasons why. So first of all, uh, it's pretty clear that people that were in those, those military fortresses, as people like Hess or Copan like to say, there were also a lot of civilians in there, including women and children. I mean, they're explicitly referenced in um, Joshua 6 when the destruction of Jericho <clears throat> and in Joshua 8 with the destruction of Ai. It, it refers to men and women, young and old being slaughtered en masse. So there were civilians. It was a mass eradication of those populations. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that when you are trying to expulse people from the land, you are trying to eradicate and destroy their culture, which is genocide by definition. And the third thing I would say is that uh, anybody who's left behind, who fails to get out of the way from the rural population clearly would have been killed by the Israelites within the narrative. That's the implication. In fact, uh, Copan and Matthew Flanagan in their book on the topic, they quote Kenneth Kitchen on this. I think it was Kenneth Kitchen, uh, who says basically the slower people in the population, they would they would not end up living. Essentially, I mean, I think he, I remember him trying to couch the language. And so what that ends up saying is. Yes, the, the poor rural population is fleeing in terror as they see the cities smoking in ruins. And all the, the weak and handicapped and elderly that get left behind are butchered by Israelite soldiers. If that happened today in a place like Rwanda, no question but that that would be called genocide by legal definition. Uh, one of the things that another thing that's troubling about this whole thing is how how easily we have accepted this or, or glossed over it. Can you talk about, you, you developed uh, some terms or some classifications for the various ways in which Christians tend to handle it. And, and in the interest of full disclosure, in the past, this wasn't an issue for me. I didn't think about it. There are certain sections of the Bible that don't get as much reading. Personally, for me, I'm sure that's true for other Christians as, as some other texts do. And when the question come, came up in my own mind, I would grab onto traditional kinds of apologetic arguments. Well, they were going to pervert Israel. The creator can do what he wants with his creation, these kinds of things. Uh, what kinds of, of different dynamics are going on amongst Christians that makes it so easy for us to either ignore or to justify these kinds of very problematic texts? Maybe I can offer a quick word without one apologetic that you just referenced, which I think is an important one, and then talk about sort of these coping, hermeneutical coping strategies. So um, you mentioned sort of, well, God's sovereign, he can do what he wants, that kind of thing. But clearly, we, we don't actually follow that. We don't say, for example, that if, if someone is raping a, a woman, and he says, God told me to, uh, the, we don't even consider it a possibility that, well, God is sovereign, maybe he did command rape. Right? We don't consider cannibalizing, one person cannibalizing another human being and say, well, maybe God commanded it, right? He said God commanded it, so maybe he did. No, we don't consider that because we already have a moral framework in place. Um, and the same logic, I would say, is if you see a person killing, chopping up an infant on the battlefield, and they said God told me to, 
Um, if we're being honest with ourselves, I think the same revulsion and incredulity that kicks in when you have somebody being raped or cannibalized kicks in when you see an infant being killed. And so you simply have to be consistent. So I think just invoking the sovereignty card just misses the point that God has given us moral knowledge. I mean, it's explicitly referenced, for example, in Romans 2, 12 and following, that God has given a light to Gentiles apart from the law, in fact, to everyone apart from the law, and that when we live in accord with that light, that moral knowledge that we've been given, which is written on our hearts, then we are living consistently with God, with what God expects of us. So, I mean, the, the for example, the, the golden rule was not invented by Jesus. Now, it's been often observed that Jesus put it in a positive way, where it was typically put in a negative way. Do not do unto others what you would not want done unto you. But it's the same conceptual framework mm -hmm. in play there. And everybody understands that. C.S. Lewis makes the point at the end of, of um, the abolition of man in the famous table of different cultures and religions and all the intuitions that they share. So uh, now back to the hermeneutical issue. So I develop an acronym over my dead body. Um, and, and that's what I, it seems to me are the four most common reading strategies. O, o over is omission. We omit certain details when we tell the narratives. We, we tell the destruction of Jericho, but we just say, say that the walls fell down because the, the people were faithful. We don't talk about the men, women, young and old being slaughtered uh, over my, um, so that's misrepresentation. So for example, the destruction of Jericho, we reframe it instead of saying it's an invasion, which it is, we say it's a battle. But look at the narrative. I mean, the, 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 the Canaanites are terrified. They're locked up within the city. No one's coming and going. The, the Israelites come around and then eventually invade the city and kill everybody. That's not a battle, that's an invasion, right? So we have to be careful about misrepresenting the narrative. Oh, um, okay, so oh, for my dead is distraction. And so what we often do in terms of distraction is we will give a particular moral principle to kind of distract from the violence of the narrative. So for example, with the Canaanites uh, in, in Jericho, we say, or the Israelites marching around the city, we say, well, the Israelites trusted God when what he wanted from them didn't make sense. Do you trust God when he asks you to do things that don't make sense? which is a fine enough principle, but we shouldn't invoke the principle as a way to avoid addressing the biblical violence. And then finally, a body is a blunted affect. And that's where we simply relay the, the details, but with a sort of bluntness that fails to show the way it should affect any properly functioning moral agent, right? You don't talk about things like the mass killing of every civilian in a city without some degree of passion and shock. And yet we've often relayed those. And one of my favorite examples is where the angel of the Lord killed 185,000 Assyrians. I mean, have we ever stopped and thought for a minute what we're actually talking about? How many people that is? I mean, the, these details should shock us and then prompt us back to the text for another careful rethink. So we need to, to become aware of those strategies. Maybe they, they have some role when you're dealing with bringing young children into the biblical narrative. But if you continue using those strategies as adults, then we really need to do a rethink. Yeah, I had this prep for the podcast going through my mind uh, the last few days. And especially this morning, I just remembered in my young Christian past, and my, my wife years ago used to be at, uh, in children's ministry. And I remember the flannel graph stories of uh, Noah and the song, you know, the Lord toward Noah to build him an arky arky. And if you step back and yeah. think about it, it's a story uh, about uh, divinely uh, commanded and created destruction of most of humanity. 
Um, don't we need to step back? And, and, and it's so difficult to rethink just what we've assumed and really been enculturated in, in terms of our understanding of our own faith tradition? I think about when my daughter was in a youth choir, she sang a song called 100% Chance of Rain, which was about the Noe flood. And it goes, it's going to rain, 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 <laughs> rain, rain. And then all that rain's like drowning every human being and every animal <laughs> on the planet. I mean, and drowning is, no kidding aside, kidding aside, drowning is a horrible way to die. Yeah. Christopher Hitchens submitted to being waterboarded and he describes right. it because that's back when the the government or the CIA and so on, the military was using what are called extreme interrogation techniques, including waterboarding, which initiates the feeling of drowning and suffocation within an individual as a way of extracting information from suspected terrorists. So Hitchens submitted to it. And there's this debate at the time, is this torture? Because if it is torture, then it qualifies, it's illegal by international law. Yes, he said, it's torture. I was waterboarded and it's torture. Well, that's what what uh, drowning is. It's waterboarding everyone, except that they then die. Right. Um, and so it it isn't a joke, actually. And and we have to think out yeah, how do we introduce children to these stories. Well, this I think one of the factors that's sort of underlying all of this is a fear, and it's a fear about kind of addressing some of the darker sides of scripture because of a perceived impiety. That well, if I begin to ask serious moral questions of what I'm reading in the text, first of all, will it shake my faith? Could I lose my faith? Will, get, will God be angry at me? And I think, to my mind, it's sort of like, yeah, there's some uncertainty there in terms of what that could do to your faith. But to my mind, it's an impossible, it's impossible to go back. Once you recognize that these issues are there, you really have to, to deal with them. Um, the other piece, will God be angry at me? I want to say an emphatic no. You, you spoke earlier about uh, one of the reasons why Christian views on this, this easy acceptance of this uh, genocide and biblical violence, why you see it as having the potential being problematic for the future. Um, kind of the way I, I got into this, again, is in a multi-faith context, and, and Christians tend to draw upon biblical certain biblical passages to justify a very aggressive, defensive way of relating to people in other religious traditions. Even uh, going back and looking at, uh, you know, in the Old Testament, uh, with uh, the priests of Baal and uh, and Elijah in that confrontation, and they say, "See, you know, we we, we this is, means the Bible says we need to be confrontational, and this way of treating them respectfully in dialogue, this this just isn't a biblical way to go about it." Thankfully, when they go to that passage, they don't go so far as to say, "Well, let's let's also take the next step and, and slay all the priests who were supporting false gods." But it seems to me that there is that potential. If you're going to draw upon a biblical text and take it so far in one context, if another context arises, you might be tempted to take it further. Do you see a further uh, possibility with, with uh, Christians in the future, particularly with an increased concern for alleged loss of religious freedoms in America and religious persecution and these kinds of things? How might this view of biblical violence lend itself to other very uncomfortable real-world realities? Yeah, this is um, it's a disturbing question. Um, Philip Jenkins, um, you in our conversation earlier, I can't remember if this was recorded or not, but you mentioned his book, I think, Laying Down the Sword, and he discusses a fair amount of the history of the church within that book, a very good book, and uh, the degree to which people like Oliver Cromwell or... Uh, in this 17th century, when he invaded Ireland, he invoked 
rhetoric of the Canaanites to dehumanize the Irish and justify genocide against them. Early uh, Puritans within the United States did something similar to the resident indigenous populations. There's a long history of this. Um, and I do worry that human nature is that we look for rationalizations to justify violence against others. And this is, I think, in the United States, right? I'm, I'm a Canadian, I'm watching from a distance, but it is a perilous time that there is such a deep polarization in the social and political discourse. I think a lot of that has been propagated by social media and people end up with these silos and they just echo chambers that they just keep hearing their own views and they get more and more extreme and radical without re realizing it. Uh, and in a recent survey, for example, I believe it was one third of Republicans said that violence may be required in the future uh, if because there's a, this, this what I believe is false belief in election fraud, widespread election fraud, and that Donald Trump lost the election. And I don't want to get into this whole debate, but I do believe um, there was multiple courts looked at that. There was no evidence of election fraud unless you want to develop the most elaborate conspiracy theorization. It, it's not well evidenced, mm -hmm. but but people are saying there is election fraud and we may need violence in the future. Now, I would say even if there is election fraud, I mean, even if there were election fraud, this quick move to violence, and I'm pretty sure that a lot of that is among evangelicals who are very willing to consider violence against the other. Now, this is why we really need to root ourselves in the reading of scripture and a proper approach, and to keep in mind that Joshua, the first Joshua, is not our model for reading scripture. The second Joshua, that is Jesus, is our model for reading scripture. Uh, the killing of the prophets of Baal should not be our model for cultural engagement. Jesus interacting with the Canaanite woman in Matthew 15 should be our model for engagement with the other. Um, so again, he says, love your neighbor. And he repeatedly hammers home who our neighbor is. It is the tax collector. It is the Samaritan. It is the, the woman who was caught in adultery. It is the leper. It is the Canaanite. These are all the people that Jesus humanizes that we in our human nature want to otherize or dehumanize. And I think if we want to avoid the danger of a quick relapse into violence and violent biblical reading in the future, we really need to root ourselves in who Jesus has revealed to be in the Gospels. Well, to kind of elaborate on that with uh, one final uh, question for you there. I know in the book you say that the intent of the book is not to provide, you know, a, a new set of, of answers and that type of thing, but you've just set forward a suggestion as to how we might counter that. Would you have any other thoughts along those lines? Um, what can we say at this point, even as we continue to wrestle with this very important topic about how we, we might address this and change this uh, for example, in the area of biblical interpretation of hermeneutics, let's take that a little bit further. When I think one of the assumptions is, if I'm going to be faithful to the authority of Scripture, then I have to read it in this particular way. And therefore, even if it's a very uncomfortable reading, it must be what God intends us to understand. How can we, what would some suggestions be further to how we can counter this, this problem, this challenge that we have? I think that we have to, first of all, recognize that the Bible is not simply a one-dimensional description of God's commands, what God expects of us. Um, rather, it's three-dimensional. It's developed within the warp and woof of human existence. It's complex, and you have to read it with attention to that fact. So, for example, 
in the imprecatory psalms, in the cursing psalms, when the psalmist says that blessed is he who takes their babies and dashes them against the rocks, right? In Psalm 137, he infamously describes infanticide of your enemy's children as, as, a, as a praiseworthy thing, a thing for which you should receive a blessing. You could take that as a flat command. Okay, so it's it's a blessed thing to kill the children of your enemies, those who are oppressing you. I think that is utterly to miss the application of that text. Rather, what we have to say is what was the context in which that text was written? Well, it was written when Israelites are being sent into exile in Babylon. In fact, they are arguably undergoing a cultural genocide at that point. Babylon is trying to destroy their cultural identity that unites them as a people. And they're resisting against that. And one of the heart cries when you experience that kind of oppression is to want to lash out at your enemies. But then rather than say, okay, let's lash out at our enemies, we say, perhaps that is providentially within the text so that we can learn from the pain and suffering of the psalmist, empathize with it, but also through Christ, move beyond it and find a way to begin to love our enemies, even as we resist the oppression that they want to impose upon us. And that leads, I think, to, to a much more intellectually and morally and theologically satisfying approach to scripture, which respects the totality of scripture as the inspired and revealed word of God. So I, I think that we just need to begin to approach a text with, with uh, more depth in that in that way, rather than simply thinking you can just take something written there and just necessarily read it out of the page as a directive for you. Uh, you get in a lot of trouble if you try to do that. Well, as I said uh, at the beginning of our conversation, it's a great book. Folks can look for a link to it, uh, as well as more background information in the program notes. Is, is there anything else you'd like listeners and viewers to take away from your book as we wrap up here? I'll end with this, um, that a, a lot of people struggle with their Christian faith because of this issue. And I've met a lot of people who've left Christianity because of this issue. You can deny that, their narrative and say, no, you, you left Christianity because you're angry at God or something else. But I think uh, in my experience, I've seen a lot of people for whom this was something that crushed their faith. And I want to say that no person should feel obliged to, to leave Christianity because of a particular reading of things like the Canaanite genocide. The heart of Christianity is Jesus Christ incarnated, I like your cat, <laughs> incarnated, died and raised again, and he's coming again. That's the heart of Christianity, right? So um, that's where our focus should be, not in creating unnecessary stumbling blocks like the obligation that you have to accept the historical destruction of the Canaanites. So there should be room within the Christian conversation for these alternative perspectives that operate with a different theological grid. Well, Randall, I appreciate you coming again on the podcast and uh, discussing your book. Um, and the title we've been talking about is Jesus Loves Canaanites, Biblical Genocide in the Light of Moral Intuition. Thanks for coming on again. It's been great being with you, John. Thanks. Sure. Well, again, this is the podcast for Multi-Faith Matters. I'm the host, John Moorhead. And this, if you're watching the video on my shoulders, my one sometimes co-host, uh, Socks, uh, the Siamese. So uh, until the next uh, podcast, thanks to everyone for, for watching and listening.